Welcome back to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I hope you enjoyed the holidays and are off to a safe and healthy new year. I'm Aaron Weiss, the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Bluff, Utah. On the show today, we're interviewing investigative journalist Katie Wirth. She wrote an excellent book about how the oil and gas industry takes advantage of our underfunded public education system to spread misinformation about fossil fuels to students across the country. Before we jump into that conversation, let's do the news. 2022 is off to a strong start, with the Biden administration moving forward on some of its goals, like plugging orphaned wells and protecting Chaco Canyon from drilling. You may remember that the infrastructure bill that passed last fall included $250 million to clean up and plug abandoned oil and gas wells. At that time, the Interior Department estimated that there were around 56,000 orphaned wells across state, federal, and tribal lands. But a new report from Interior has found there are likely more than double that number of wells in need of remediation. Now, that certainly may seem like bad news, but it does show that the Interior Department is serious about addressing the problem, and it means the department will be starting off with more accurate information, or at least less inaccurate information, and expectations when it officially launches the cleanup program this week. Keep in mind that cleaning up abandoned wells is only half the problem. The reason that there are so many orphaned wells to begin with is that oil and gas companies aren't required to post bonds large enough that ensures there's money to clean up after themselves if they go bankrupt or just walk away from an oil well. A fix for that underlying problem is in the Build Back Better Act, which you'll recall stalled out in the Senate before the holidays thanks to Joe Manchin. So while Congress is addressing one problem, the root cause is still there, which means there are still those incentives for oil companies to not clean up after themselves. Also, you may remember back in November, President Biden announced he would create a buffer zone around Chaco Canyon to protect it from oil and gas drilling. Of course, that's not as simple as it sounds. Interior has to formally withdraw the land, which adds around 350,000 acres that are being protected, and then has to go through an environmental review process before it's official. So the good news is that the department has initiated that process last week, and the ball is off and rolling. Today we're joined by award-winning investigative journalist Katie Wirth. She has a new book out called Miseducation, How Climate Change is Taught in America. It's a short but infuriating read that pulls the curtain back on the many ways the fossil fuel industry is sowing doubt about climate change in America's classrooms, despite the global scientific consensus that human-caused climate change is real and getting worse. So without further ado, welcome to The Landscape, Katie. I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So I first heard about your book on another podcast called Drilled, which I highly recommend to all of our listeners. Um, And I remember thinking, of course, big oil is influencing public education. It makes so much sense, but we rarely hear about it. So I'm curious, how did you find out about this issue and why did you decide to write a book about it? I, I kind of came at this not from the big oil perspective. I came at it um, because I, uh, I was a reporter at the PBS investigative series Frontline for several years. And while I was there, I was um, uh, assigned a story in the Marshall Islands. Um, and while we were there, we were talking to kids. And um, these kids that we were talking to could speak really fluently about climate change. And so 
you know, one of them uh, was considering moving back to the to the U.S. Uh, or actually, his family had extended family in um, in Oklahoma that they had visited, and they were thinking about moving there. And so the question arose, you know, so what would he and his siblings learn about climate change if they moved to Oklahoma? And so that was kind of like the one of the origin stories of this of this book. Um, another was shortly after we got back from that trip, I actually, I was doing some reporting on climate denialism and I went to this climate denial conference hosted by um, a group called Heartland Institute based in Chicago. They're kind of um, famously like, they're kind of like the head honcho in the climate denial world lately. You know, they really still push this idea that the science is out, that it might be solar cycles, that it might be gravitational waves, you know, like they, they like really push these out there theories for which there is not a scrap of evidence. Um, and they host these conferences that bring all of the world's climate denialists into one room, and they talk about it. And while I was there, I was already interested in climate education. So I was talking to the executive director, and he mentioned that the organization was just starting a campaign to send packets of information to 200,000 science teachers across the country and those packets included a book one of one of the one of the things in the packets was a book called um, why scientists disagree about global warming which of course they don't and then um, another was uh, a dvd called unstoppable solar cycles which is an old film that is also pushing this idea that climate change is not caused by humans so between those two, it felt like there was some like rich reporting territory there. And then as I dug into it, then I started realizing the extent of the fossil fuel industry's influence on climate education. It, it was so shocking to me to hear that number that their campaign, it's not like they're sending it to a couple hundred teachers. It's like all of the science teachers in the U.S. practically. Um, so I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you to get into the different ways that the industry uses both directly and indirectly to sow doubt about climate change in educators and students. So, you know, I think it's maybe worth going back um, to, uh, you know, like the fossil fuel. And this is not a new thing. Fossil fuel industry has been pushing its messages to school children since um, at least the 1950s when they created a program called the Magic Barrel, which was all about like the, the all of the magic in a barrel of oil. And they trained 900 people to go classroom to classroom and give these show and tell programs. Um, that, and, and they did that because they had done a survey and they found out that, you know, the American public didn't didn't have as positive a view of the oil industry as they wanted them to, and they had this idea. Like, if we, I mean, they they attacked that problem with many thing with with many campaigns, but one of them was to reach school children because if you can plant this positive feeling in school children, that pays off in the long run, right? And so they've kind of played with that idea over the course of decades. They've, there's, you know, the American Petroleum Institute has put out tons of educational materials. Um, individual um, companies have done so. I think it's Chevron that, you know, partnered with Disney to put out comic books like Disney, uh, Mickey and Goofy Explore Energy. You know, it's like things like that. There was a, 
uh, like a video series that was hosted by William Shatner about the energy crisis in the 70s that was seen by millions of students in this country. Um, and it was pushing this idea that the energy industry should not be regulated, you know, and because that was the big issue in the 70s during the oil crisis was like, should we regulate the oil industry more? And like, they were really actively campaigning against it with school children. So like, this is not a new thing. I guess I was really surprised that this is still going on. Like, this is not in the past. It's it's very present. Could you talk about what's happening in classrooms right now? Yeah. So there are organizations across the country that have been established by the fossil fuel industry to, you know, teach kids about their industry and to get their to get their messages into school children. Um, probably the most um, vivid example of that was one day I was sitting in a an Arkansas classroom when in walked a representative of the Arkansas State uh, Oil and Gas Industry Association. And she was there with a PowerPoint presentation for the seventh graders. And, you know, this PowerPoint presentation had some legitimate information about like the geology of Arkansas, where you can find oil and gas um, uh, you know, like the technology used to get the oil and gas out of the ground, et cetera. And then there was a whole section about the environmental impact of the oil industry. And she very explicitly downplayed the climate crisis, you know, and said things like, well, you know, every source of fuel has a problem. Windmills kill birds and solar panels, like what happens if if it's nighttime when there's a solar panel, things like that. And her whole job was to go classroom to classroom in Arkansas. She's probably given this same presentation to thousands of children and they, you know, they've absorbed it. Can you talk about the textbook industry? I thought that was a really interesting example of um, sort of an indirect consequence of big oil's influence over politics. Yeah. So the way the textbook industry works is that, you know, they update their textbooks about once a decade or maybe twice a decade, and they pay very close attention to what's happening in a couple of states that are their biggest textbooks purchasers, right? One of those is Texas. And Texas has this really rigorous process to adopt textbooks. Like they they just comb through every single uh, word, in part to assure that there's not errors, but also with a very political eye. The, the school board, the elected school board is very conservative. So they like look very closely at what's, you know, kind of what the political winds are in in Texas as they start writing their their next textbook. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I read through dozens of textbooks and almost all of them included some really good information about climate change, but also lines like, while many scientists think that climate change is being caused by humans, some believe that it's natural, which is false. It's not true. You know, in 2019, there was a study that looked at every single peer-reviewed paper about climate change and looked at what they concluded was causing it. And 100% of them said that it was humans. There was not a single paper that suggested another cause. So we're basically at 100% scientific consensus at this point. And so even at the time, that was not true. Even at the time that it was written, those things weren't true. So um, 
you know, the folks that I talked to who were in the room as those things were being decided said that there were some really explicit conversations saying, well, like, we have to be careful. We, we, we have to sell this book in Texas, so we have to be really careful about what we say. And we're, we can say this, but we can't say that. And we're just going to walk the line. Obviously, teachers don't have any control over what textbooks land in their classroom, especially in a state like Texas, where all of that is assigned top down. But with these folks you mentioned who are essentially getting paid to go spread disinformation via PowerPoint, do do teachers or principals uh, or even local school districts realize that they are being sent there, that they are effectively being paid by the oil and gas industry, or is there enough obfuscation there that even the teachers don't recognize they're bringing in an industry spokesperson? Well, you know, first of all, like the industry is really important in a lot of these states and like teachers have friends, family in the industry. They have a positive view of the industry. It's essential sure. for their, you know, state's economy, their community's economy, you know, and so their politics are all over the map as, you know, they're just people. They're all over the map, but they may have absorbed a lot of climate denial messages themselves over their lives and may legitimately believe that there's still debate on this issue. You know, a lot of them probably believe that. And, you know, also teachers are super busy. Like they, some of them told me, like, I don't even have time to pee in the day and you want me to go like become an expert on this topic and figure out how to navigate all the pushback I'm going to get if I teach it. It's just good extra material for them as far as they're concerned. Yeah. And, you know, like I think that some of them, many of them do, right? Like many of them do. There's lots of teachers out there that all, all over the country that are teaching this and are teaching it well. But we know that there's also lots that are teaching basically climate denial talking points in classrooms to children. While we're on the topic of teachers, um, I think that it's really important we touch on what you mentioned, funding and resources, and how Big Oil essentially exploits the lack of funding and resources that some of these teachers have in order to get their message through. And I'm wondering if you could tell us how they do that. Yeah, so a lot of these organizations provide professional development seminars for teachers. And those are like just sponsored by the fossil fuel industry very explicitly. And so they'll go to these things and they'll be paid for their time and then they'll, you know, or a substitute will be provided and then they'll walk away with a barrel full of lab equipment. And in Oklahoma, there's an organization called the Oklahoma Education Resources or no, Oklahoma Energy Resources Board, which is a so-called privatized state agency funded by a voluntary tax on the fossil fuel industry, which is happily paid. And they create educational materials for classrooms and for teachers. Um, and they give these seminars for teachers and they promise that the teacher can walk away with like three to $500 worth of uh, lab equipment if they go to a half day seminar. And, you know, this is a state where they, like, reduced the school week to four days for a while because it's just, education is so underfunded there. So, you know, you offer that to a teacher who's has to pay out of her own pocket, say, for, you know, a lot of the, the materials in her class, she'll say yes. It's a little bit insidious, and I think it is taking advantage of the, the lack of resources in education. Is there any 
data or estimates as to how many states have this kind of uh, seriously compromised curriculum going on at the at the state level? I know you your your book gave state report cards. Does that give you a did that did that enable you to kind of create that that metric of understanding how how much this is going on from state to state? So um, an organization called the National Center for Science Education uh, teamed up with an, another organization called the Texas Freedom Network, and they hired a panel of experts basically to look at each state's academic standards. And so this panel read through the standards of uh, the science standards of every single state and specifically how they treated climate change and then rated them based on whether it communicated that climate change is happening, that it's caused by humans, that it's going to, you know, going to have some like what the effects might be and also that what the solutions might be, that there's some hope, you know. And then they turned those ratings into letter grades. And what we, and then what I did uh, with a team of uh, student journalists is we kind of mapped those letter grades on, onto a red, blue, purple map of the country based on what, uh, who controlled the state legislatures, because the state legislatures, all, in most cases, have to give the thumbs up to these state standards. So they have pretty direct control over what they say. And what we found was there's this like rough red blue divide, as you might expect, you know, so like every single blue state, every single blue state got a, at least a B plus. And the red, there were a few red states that got A's. I think Wyoming and Alaska got A's. And then the rest of the um, red states got C's, D's, and F's. There were, I think there were six that got F's. And so, um, you know, this is this really wide range of what states ask their kids to learn about climate change, which means like information about the future becomes the f- purview of kids who's whose state legislatures happen to be run by one political party, you know, but it's not like climate change is going to stop and like check who runs the state legislature before inflicting harm. You know, it's like every kids in every state are going to have to deal with this. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Wyoming. That was one that really surprised me because they're obviously a big oil state here in the West. So I'm curious if you know anything about what's going on there or why they're kind of winning in terms of climate change education? Yeah, that's a good question. And I unfortunately don't know the details. Um, I do know that it was controversial when they adopted their science standards and that actually there were uh, efforts to repeal the climate standards there that then had to be defeated later. But, you know, I think it comes down to activism, basically, by science educators. There are science educators and parents in every single state that really pay close attention to their standards adoption and really like work hard to make sure that that the standards are robust, you know, and they care about this issue and they they lobby for it, you know, and they push back on these climate denial talking points. And I think in some states, probably the state legislature is more inclined to defer to the professionals and then in other states, they're more inclined to get into the weeds and get involved politically. So I'm the parent of a sixth grader who is right now in her science curriculum learning about resources, renewable, non-renewable, 
they've not gotten explicitly to a climate change unit, but uh, you know, I, I look at this stuff, I pay attention to this stuff because it is literally my day job. And even it's hard for me to figure out exactly what's going on. I'm like, well, was something in here? Is it all accurate? Was something in here put in here at the behest of the oil and gas industry? What are some of the things that parents should be looking for with the materials that their kids are are bringing home? Are there key buzzwords or obvious units that might come home that would tip a, a parent off of, hang on, something's not right here. I need to have a conversation with with my kid's teacher and probably my kid as well. Well, one of the things we know happens in classrooms a lot is that climate change is taught as a debate. Like kids are act- literally told to debate it. And, you know, there's a reason for that, which is that debate is pretty good pedagogy. And so teachers do use that in a lot of different contexts. But Well, you don't debate gravity when you're teaching physics. Gravity, you don't debate, you know, mitosis. At this point, you would never have kids debate whether whether cigarettes cause cancer, right? right? And you would do that because some kids would walk away from that debate thinking that they don't, right? And they do. Yeah, and, and that's important for them to know. And so it's like there's a danger in having kids debate things. But I think the survey showed that at least a third of teachers teach climate change as a debate. And like and that's oh, that's a big number. So I would look out for that. I would read the text. I'm curious if you read the textbooks exactly what they say about climate change. I just found them riddled with these like this language that's it's subtle, it might be like, you know, humans may be changing the climate or scientists believe that more heat warming pollutants in the atmosphere may warm the the atmosphere. It's like, no, like... That, that's you, not a may, right? <laughs> yeah. May, you know? Um, it's You brought up um, renewable and non-renewable resources, which is a classic. We all learned that. But just... Uh, two weeks ago, the Texas State Board of Education approved new middle school standards for their state that took out those concepts from elementary and middle school because they argued, the fossil fuel industry argued that like, well, what really is renewable and what is non-renewable? Because if you look at these solar panels, they're using rare earth minerals and those aren't renewable if you have to use non-renewable things to build windmills. So like, it's very complicated. It's too complicated for children to understand, for teachers to understand, you know, and so that's no longer in the Texas standards. And watch, watch in the next five to 10 years, they're not going to be in the nation's textbooks because the textbook makers were watching those debates, you know? Help me follow the money here. You mentioned groups like Texas Energy Council. We we started by talking about Heartland, which is really the gravitational center of science denial. Is all of this money just eventually flowing back from, uh, from oil and gas companies and from folks like the Koch networks, or are there other mixes of money going along here? Uh, that folks should be aware of? You know, it's pretty hard to follow money in these kinds of contexts. Um, We know from reporting like by Jane Mayer of The New Yorker, and there's an academic named 
Robert Bruley, Bruel, um, who's done quite a lot of uh, research about this, that for many years, the, the fossil fuel industry would, and their allies were pushing, putting like tons and tons of money into this. But it became kind of like no longer acceptable for the fossil fuel industry to do so publicly, at least. Maybe not at all. I don't know. We don't know, right? Because these things are protected in the American system. The fossil fuel industry can contribute to PACs and it all goes through all different routes so that we don't know exactly what they're funding. But suffice to say, somebody funded the Heartland Institute to send out 200,000 packets of these books and DVDs, right? Like, it's not cheap. That kind, that kind of printing, mailing, production costs, that's a big chunk of change. Yeah. It must have cost millions. And so who paid for that? Um, you know, Certainly somebody with um, with an agenda. Mm -hmm. And uh, so unfortunately, I can't answer your question with much clarity, but you can just kind of look at the outcome and and look and and the history. And like we do know historically that, you know, I think. Broly calculated that like $900 million a year for a while was going to organizations that push climate denialism. I, I hope I have that number right, but it's something like outrageous like that, you know, and that money had effect, you know, like we live in 2021, climate change is happening all around us and kids are still learning climate denial talking points in class. So Katie, I want to ask you what surprised you the most in the course of your reporting for this book. So I'm from far northern California, a town called Chico. Um, and um, I that's only about 15 miles away from Paradise, California. And you might remember Paradise burned to the ground in a mega fire in 2018. Um, and so I went there right after the fire and then a few a few months later uh partly because my own family was affected but um also to do some reporting and every school except for one in paradise was displaced by the fire uh the middle school was displaced into a, a shuttered big box hardware store so like an old like imagine a school in a in a home depot like it was all very surreal and a little bit apocalyptic honestly uh, to watch. But one of the teachers there was teaching a unit on climate change, which he did every single year. And um, it was a couple week unit where he just kind of built up the site, just explained the science, took the student, you know, gave the students data about carbon dioxide levels and how they've changed over time, temper historic temperature records in cities all over the world, etc. Paradise is actually, despite being in Northern California, a very conservative community, very red, very poor, very white, um, mostly white community. And a lot of the kids, if they'd heard anything about it, had heard that climate change was a hoax. And um, one of the kids at one point raised his hand and just said, hey, I don't know what to think. I don't know who to believe. My parents say climate change isn't real, but then we come and we're looking at NASA data, you know, like, I just don't know what to think. What, what, you know, is it real? Is this a hoax? Like, why are we learning this if it's not real? You know, he's like 12, you know, <laughs> like trying to contend with this. And the teacher handled it really 
thoughtfully, I thought. He's like, I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to just give you the best evidence out there and you get to make your own analysis. And so that sort of like sidestepped this like, well, your parents are wrong, you know, like, but like you kind of planted the seed. And he nonetheless, this kid wound up being like, well, I don't, you know, my parents don't believe it. So I don't believe it. And what what was shocking about that or like gutting maybe is the better word is that these kids could literally be described as climate refugees, right? Like they lost everything in a mega fire in a town whose five hottest summers had all happened in the five previous years, a town that had gotten less than a fifth of an inch of rain in six months. And they're still they're still not sure if what's happening to them is actually climate change, even though they're literally homeless because of it. Yes. It strikes me what a disservice it is to kids to not prepare them for this since so much of our economy in the future will revolve around finding solutions to climate change. Like, how how do you feel about that? Are you concerned about what this is going to mean for the future of our energy transition? Yeah, I mean, Frank Neopold, who's sort of like the climate education czar for NOAA, um, makes this point over and over again that, like, first of all, kids deserve to understand the world that they're walking into, this century that they were born into that will be defined by this crisis, right? And, like, like we owe them information. They need to be armed with information about that. They need to at least have some fundamental understanding of what's happening. And then also it really affects their career choice. Like there's hardly an industry that won't be affected by climate change in some way. And so, you know, as they make their career choices, they should have this in mind and be thinking about this because it's going to be relevant. And then also there's a great study done by Eugene Cordero of San Jose State University. He followed this group of students who had like they had taken an intensive unit or intensive class on climate change as freshmen, I think, and then followed them for many years and just tracked their consumer choices. And they made different choices than their peers. Like they ate less meat, they bought electric cars. And he calculated that if every student in America took that class, the impact of their choices would be as much as putting solar panels on every house in America. Like it was it was a huge intervention just to teach, tell people about it, because telling people about it then changes their choices. So not only do we owe kids this information, but also we need them to kind of roll up their sleeves and get to work. And like just telling them about it is uh, part of the solution. Cool. Well, thank you, Katie. Is there anything else you want to add before we head out? No, this was a really great conversation. Thanks for having me. We had a lot of good news to choose from for this segment with some exciting conservation successes in both Texas and California. But we're going to focus on the news out of California, where a couple from Newport Beach donated $50 million to create a 72,000-acre nature preserve. The preserve is located in the southern Sierra Nevada mountains, about 100 miles north of downtown Los Angeles. The couple donated the money to the Nature Conservancy, which says the preserve will help sustain rare, threatened, and endangered species by protecting a critical migration corridor that connects southern and northern California. 
So as we talk about the 30 by 30 effort to save nature and the many different pathways it's going to take to get there, this is a shining example of how private conservation efforts can help America move towards landscape scale land protections. Groups like the Nature Conservancy and private land trusts all across the country are going to play a big role not just in California, but especially the South, where you have states that are very rich in biodiversity, but don't have the public land footprint that we do here in the West. That's it for this episode. Let us know what you think about the podcast or leave us a review wherever you're listening to this. You could also send us an email with any suggestions to podcast at westernpriorities.org. And we'd love it if you left us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. That's the best way for new listeners to find us. I'm Kate Gretzinger. And I'm Aaron Weiss. On behalf of the whole team at the Center for Western Priorities, thank you for listening to The Landscape. <laughs>